Coming up on today's Speakeasy Podcast, we're talking with Fear the Walking Dead's Kim Dickens, who explains to us why zombie shows are so popular these days. It's the metaphor. Metaphors for our anxieties and fears, deep ones or our daily ones. They're just always there creeping up on you and you're just slaying zombies left and right every aren't we all like every day this is wsj speakeasy your source for entertainment pop culture celebrity and the arts hello welcome to the wall street journal speakeasy podcast my name is mike ayers i'm an arts and entertainment reporter here at the journal today's guest is one of the most prolific actors working today kim dickens over the last 15 years she's been in pretty much every great show from deadwood to lost to friday night lights to sons of anarchy uh, the list goes on. Now she stars in AMC's Fear the Walking Dead as Maddie, the matriarch of the survivors, as well as a featured role on Netflix's delicious political drama, House of Cards. Kim, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So when you were first starting off, did you ever think you'd one day be acting next to zombies? <laughs> no, I didn't imagine that. I don't know what I imagined, but it certainly wasn't that. You were you were trained here in New York, yes. Yes. Okay, um, and it, that was like the was that the early nineties when you you were here. Yeah, could have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was here. Uh, I went to American Academy of Dramatic Arts. I started out, did a little summer program first at Lee Strasberg Theater Institute at NYU, and from there I studied with private teachers and just you know keeps. I still I still study. You still study. Yeah. Well, I mean, what were those early days uh, like for you? Was it, um, did, did you find it tough? I loved it. I loved living in New York City. I loved being in acting school. Uh, I was a waitress. I was able to pay rent in Manhattan <laughs> and go to auditions in Manhattan, which it doesn't really happen anymore. So um, it was a, it was a pretty exciting time. Where were you living? Well, I lived in the East Village. I lived in Chelsea, a couple of different places. And for the longest period, I lived uh, directly across the street from the Chelsea Hotel. Okay. Yeah. Uh, rent prices back then, what were those like? I think it started at, at 418 418 or Yeah. $418? That's correct. Okay. Um, <laughs> my, my, it's like back in the olden my times. My cheap rent in 2004 for a really tiny place um, on the Upper East Side was twelve hundred. So that's pretty good. Though. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's not four eighteen good, but it's still uh, it's still uh, pretty good. I mean, did you find living in the city tough then? I mean, it's how you were young, right, at that yeah. time? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's you know, it, it's a big city. It's very competitive. Um, did you find it that way at all? Um. I don't think I was really aware of the competitiveness of it. I was young, and I moved up here without knowing anyone. I just went into school, and, you know, it was it was probably rougher then. You know, it was, it was pretty exciting, and um, so at times it felt dangerous, you know. Um, but as far as competitiveness, you know, once I started um, going on auditions and things like that for my career— because I was here for several years without that. Um, once I started going, I I don't know. I just thought it was – sometimes I would question myself, like, what what are you doing? Why are you doing this? You know, 
it just seemed like such a crapshoot, but I knew it's what I love to do. And I just, I just didn't think too much about it. I just kept showing up and trying and, you know, showing up in those audition rooms with a ton of girls. Mm. Some are who I see working now, you know, still, you they're, know. They're still doing it. Sure. It's, I will still, you know, working. And yeah. They're, everything. They're, yeah, yeah, they're still, they, um, they had that same, I mean, like that same focus, like what would, was there any alternative in your mind or was, was this kind of it? Yeah, that was the scary thing. I didn't have an alternative. Yeah. Uh, where, where did you, were, were you a good waitress? I was. You were? Yeah. Where, where at? Um, you want the list or you want the main place? The main place. Cowgirl but, Hall of Fame. Uh, I don't know what that is. Really? What is that? It's, it's a southern restaurant. Okay. And um, down in the West Village on Hudson and 10th Street. It's been there for forever. It still exists? Yeah. Okay. It's great. It was on Sex in the City. It's great southern great food. Great southern music. food. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, what was your the family back in Alabama's thoughts about this? I mean, were they concerned of this career choice? Yeah, I think they were. Um my father was a musician and singer and songwriter and artist, so I was exposed to things like that, that sort of uh, culture. But I, I don't think that, you know, no one had ever really ventured out and tried to do what I was doing. And my mother was just concerned for, you know, she wanted me to be okay and be taken care of in, in, in a career that I chose. And so at times she, she thought, why don't you come home and, and be a newscaster, you know? And I said, well, I don't really, I, it's not that I just want to be on TV. I, I don't really, I'm not, I don't think I want to be a journalist or, you know. And then she, she suggested maybe try something behind the scenes and nothing was clicking. So anyway, she's always been very supportive. So what was, was the protective? You, what was the biggest thing that you, you cite or you think that really helped you break into the industry? Because, I mean, that's like a thing that I think, you know, is perpetual for whatever career you're, you're trying to go for, you know. You know, whether it's uh, being a writer or a marketer or an actor or whatever you want. Um, you know, how do you break into it? I don't know. It's a, It was sort of a... A fluke in a way, it seems like. I mean, I'd, I'd been to school. I'd been to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and I'd graduated from there and been out of school for a while and and uh, started a theater company with some friends and just was doing things that way, grassroots. And friends recommended another class to take with this teacher called uh, by the name of Dina Levy. And I went into that class just to take another class once a week. I went into that class, and it it kind of felt like things clicked for me. Everything that I'd learned sort of gelled in that class. It just all sort of came together and made the most sense there. She's a wonderful teacher. She still teaches. And a lot of the actors in there were all, they all had agents, and they were working. And there was there there were so many facets to the class, but one of the things was, you know, it sort of focused on owning what works about you. Stop trying to change things about yourself and and uh, just be very present in yourself. And it sort of taught me how to walk into the room, like the audition rooms and stuff like that, a starting place 
to then do the work. And for me, that felt like a, a, a big moment. Yeah, I, I feel like learning presence, you know, like the, the ability to be present. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it, it's kind of in, in fashion right now, but uh, you, you have to, you know, you have to really teach yourself how to do that or at least have somebody tell you, you know, this yeah. is this is how you get ahead if you want to, you know, mm-hmm. really, really succeed. And then, but it's, you can tell somebody, but it's not that easy to, to, to learn necessarily. No, it's not. Um, you, do you consider yourself kind of a goal oriented person? Like back then, did you have like, did you give yourself timelines? Were you very, um, you know, in head down pursuit of, of goals? No, no. I kind of, <laughs> yeah, I kind of just went where the wind took me at times. But uh, I finally, I finally put my head down at once, and and I said, I have to get real pictures, and and I got some pictures, and then I said, all right, I got to send them out, and I think I sent out because you would go buy the stickers at Samuel French. Feel so old talking to you, Mike. You're bringing up all this. You did say you were going to go back far. Well, so you go by these stickers at Samuel French Bookstore of all the places you could send out your headshot before it was, you know, before they begged you to to not send them anymore. So, I think one weekend I got through like 35, and I sent out 35. And that worked. I got called in for one of them, and then I got the job, and then I got an agent. <laughs> so, so I don't know if it's just. It's just, you know, timing. If it, it's So much of it is luck. There's talent. And there's also, it takes perseverance, you know. And optimism, too. Sure. I mean, you have to be an optimistic person to sit on a weekend in New York City, mm-hmm. you know, not go out, not party, just stuff envelopes. Yep. With your head in the envelope. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and, and hope for the best. Yeah. And uh, you have to be a little glass glass full type of person to to want to do that, as well as having all those other things, perseverance and luck and uh, some nice timing. Yeah. Um, So that big break, what do you consider that big break for you that really kind of sets you on on the path that you've done in the last five, ten years? The big break from the very beginning or the one in the, the last five to ten years? Yeah, well, the one that you credit as just like the turning point of of your career. Well, I think the first job I got mm-hmm. was a big deal. Uh, and that was Palookaville, directed by Alan Taylor. And it was, as I began to get closer and closer on that job auditioning for it, the casting agent said, let me set up some meetings for you with agents, and I got an agent, and then I ended up getting the job, and that's that was a huge turning point. And I I went in there after thinking it was some not you know non union job, and I got in there, and I went to the sign in sheet, and I saw everyone's name on there with big agencies next to their name, and I, I didn't know what I was doing in there, but anyway, got that, and then I would say turning point later on would be probably Deadwood, because. I think for most of us on that show, we'd all had a career and certainly been working, and but something sort of crystallized in that moment was a, a turning point for many of us. What was that audition like? 
Deadwood? Yeah. I didn't audition for it. You didn't audition for it? No, because I'd done a series with David Milch before called Big Apple. Right. On CBS. And it should have been on cable, you know. It lasted like eight episodes. It was meant for cable. But that's I had gone in and, and met him on that, and he'd cast me on that. And so, you know, I wasn't uh, in the first two episodes of Deadwood. And when they wrote the new character, they just, he thought of me for it. That's nice. It's very nice. Yeah, so that, um, so in, in, in a weird way, I guess, Big Apple was kind of the break before the sure. break. Sure, sure, yeah. Why did that show only last eight episodes? It was dense. It was dense. Yeah. It it was great. It was FBI's and cops working together in Manhattan. It was dark, it was gritty. Funny. It was funny. Too. Funny as well. Yeah, Just the funny way Deadwood well. is, you know what I mean? The way um Ed O'Neill was the lead. He was fantastic. As always. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a great group. David Strathairn. So what was it about Deadwood that you think kind of connected with people? I mean, it didn't, you know, go, you know, eight seasons, but people certainly, it certainly has a very active cult fan base still to this day. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think it's cited in in the industry behind the scenes. Like, Pete, you know, it is as, you know, a um, as an actor's producers, a writer's TV show, like they look to that for inspiration it seems like i don't know what do you think really connected with that that show i don't know i mean i think they you know it was an example of giving creative license to this real creative genius and um i mean we it took courage on HBO's part. We didn't have full scripts, you know. We would show up at pages at a time, and and um, I think David, you know, he picked the actors who were malleable and and easy to work with in that way. And he was on set with us all the time. He was inspired by real life things that were happening for people, and would write that into the show. And at times, and um. I think, you know, David gave creative license to Janie Bryant, the costume designer. I mean, she said to me, they never said a thing to me. They just let her go. And um, she was brilliant, you know. At the time, and you know, I think at that point you had been, you know, around a lot of sets at that point. I mean, was that, did you consider that pretty revolutionary when you were, like, like showing up to work? Like, yeah. how, how crazy that seems. Because, yeah. you know... TV shows are a big, big production. Lots of cooks in the kitchen, you know. Lots of suits in the kitchen as well, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, but you know that certainly seems like it was a um, a very creative outlet for everybody. It was, and, and maybe that was what fostered everything. That just from the perform, like the performances and mm-hmm. the, and the stories, and just what he was able to get out of everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, that atmosphere maybe was part of it. Yeah, I think it was it was magical how creative it was, really. It was like, you know, when you would be at work at night and, and see the thoroughfare, working in exteriors, see the thoroughfare lit up at night, it, it was just, it sparkled. The show just sparkled because I think it, there was that amount of creative freedom to it and um, heart in it and faith without, you know, 
I think the suits were probably afraid to come out there to the set, you know, because it, it it was it was unorthodox, really, the way it was being done. And so I think that that gave to the magic of it. But you, you'd be on set and it's like we've we'd all been on sets, but nothing quite like that. Like it it was special. And it's you stand there and you would think, yeah, this is why I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to pretend here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it sounds like a transformative experience. Yeah. Um, does that seem like forever ago? That was like in the middle of last decade. It really does. It does. About, is it about nine years now? Or? Like nine, ten years. Ten years, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and you know, they really should have, we really should have done the movies, you know? And I think that, I think they're still bound to happen. I know I've had my lunch with David recently. I know he's writing. It's all very exciting and as close as it's ever been. And I, I think everybody would be, you know, jump through hoops to make it happen, you know, actor-wise as far as making schedules work Sure, and stuff. sure, yeah. All right, good. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking with Kim Dickens today. I'm Veronica Dagger, and I want to retire rich. How about you? Then listen to the Watching Your Wealth podcast. We'll help you get there. For more information, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is WSJ Speakeasy, your source for entertainment, pop culture, celebrity, and the arts. Hello. Welcome back. Today we're talking with Kim Dickens from Fear the Walking Dead. Kim, uh, with this show, with Fear the Walking Dead, you... um, you have the luxury of working on a on a program that has a pretty rabid fan base. How's that experience been for you so far? I've enjoyed it. I mean, we were lucky to have a you know a, a very passionate, mobilized audience that was created and, and earned by The Walking Dead. We were fortunate to have them look our way, give us a chance, and I think you know some have stuck around. So I feel like we have a nice. Uh, dedicated fan base right now and it's fun it's fun to have that much energy around a show you know it's being seen you know people are excited about it you know there's a lot of fan interaction there's a live talking dead show that we do afterwards with fan interaction and it you know it's fun and they dissect everything yeah there's that everything every word every like there's that head scratch that you may do they um looked looked for meaning when sometimes people just have to scratch their head. Yep. Um, I'm certainly one of those people at a time. Um, you know, you've been in this world for, for what, like a year, year and a half now working on the show? Yeah. For the most part. So. Um, you know, I don't know. What's your big takeaway on why it connects with people? Like what it speaks to? I guess, you know, the zombie genre, it's, um, you know, it's very popular, but... Uh, you know, it's always curious about why people like to show up and watch dead people potentially eat other people. I know. It's, it's, it's crazy. Uh, it's perplexing. Uh, all I can think is <laughs> is that uh, it's the metaphor, you know, that it allows, I think. It's this – because really I, I think they're metaphors. The walking dead are metaphors for our anxieties and fears, deep ones or our daily ones. It's like they're just always there creeping up on you and you're just slaying zombies left and right. Every Aren't we all like every day, you know? So, I mean, there's that. But it, it's um, it's also the genre allows for this, you know, 
heightened world with high stakes and and you know and you can play out these these I think very primitive fears that we have like what if I can't protect my family or myself what if the government betrays me what if there is an outbreak of virus I you know what if and what would I do and how would I where would I be willing to go how would my moral compass change and I think people can uh, sort of relieve some of that anxiety by you know playing it out, you know, viscerally experiencing it and it went through the show, and then they can turn it off and have their better life. Yeah, I mean, it certainly does speak exactly to what you're saying, like the the anxieties. That was a good uh, description about, you know, things creeping up around you. That's what zombies do. You know, they're not very fast. They're, they're not, not fast. They're, they're not, not swift. They're not Olympic sprinters um, by any means. But, uh, you know, they are... They are fearful, and there's a certain, I guess, paranoia that, the, you know, Kirkman and the, the folks love to mm-hmm. constantly introduce, whether it's human-on-human paranoia mm-hmm. and or, you know, zombie-on-human paranoia. And the, the idea of making quick decisions and what you can be and this is what the second uh, this season seems to really be exploring in everybody some more you know than others um but your character specifically seems like she's you know really realizing what's at stake Mm -hmm. and there's people that eat people but that's not really what is the Mm -hmm. the the most scary aspect about this new reality it's uh it's what humans have turned into. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and this must be, you know, looking at your body of work, you know, you um, have, you know, it, she seems like such a new type of person for you to explore. Is that, would you say that's pretty accurate? Yes and no. Um, I mean, the, at first glance for me it was, and then the more I get into it, the more I realize, you know, I'm familiar with playing women who are struggling or have been from somewhere, been through something that maybe we don't know what it is, but somehow we root for her and she's not a victim. So I also realize as at first, you know, at first I thought the genre was not for me or I was not for the genre. I had not done the genre before and didn't think I'd fit in. And then I start to realize, you know, Deadwood and and Treme were both apocalyptic in the way. I mean, Deadwood was a wild west, a lawless community um, where disease was rampant and and no one was protected. And then Treme, they right post Katrina, New Orleans felt betrayed by their government and you know um, victims of of natural disasters. So the stakes were life or death, and all of those shows. Yeah, what? When did you make that connection? This is a very you know intriguing connection you know that the the wild west the zombie apocalypse the uh, post katrina they all can kind of start to feel the, the same you mm-hmm. know it's just a different context mm-hmm. um was it did you had, was the first set first season pretty much done when you kind of realized that or you kind of like you know before, i think so yeah yeah all right, good. Um, you know, we we talked about the the Walking Dead fan base, and you know, we have so many options for consuming television and movies these day, 
these days is the industry tougher do you think these days and versus like maybe 10 or 20 years ago like there's more opportunity but it's maybe harder to find you know people to watch because there's just so much choice i i don't know if the industry is tougher i just know i I can't speak to that really i don't know because i have been on you know i've gone from treme to well as far as streaming and television go um from Treme to House of Cards to, um, you know, back on to cable. Cable. Yeah. Yeah, everywhere. It's AMC. And so I, I, I just know as a viewer, it's hard to find the time, all the shows I want to watch that are out there because there's such an abundance of material. Do you watch a lot of TV? I don't, I don't have as much time as I'd like to. So I feel like there's a lot of shit. Like, I want to watch second season of Fargo so badly. And I just, I can't, you know. I saw Broad City. I love Broad City. So I finally saw that There you one. go. There you go. <laughs> you know, but. Um, yeah, I mean, there is certainly amount of, the, the amount of choice that a viewer has is, you know, it just keeps kind of expanding. It seems yeah, like what every, do you think? What do you think it does, it's done it's, to the business? It's, uh. Well, it's the opportunity for people is great, mm-hmm. you know, because there's a lot of great, talented people, and um, you know, there's opportunity for new people coming up. Uh, you know, your show, Fear the Walking Dead, features a lot of new faces, right? In my opinion, um, I hadn't seen them before. They yeah. probably had been working, um, but this was this was their break. This was yeah. this is their Deadwood, mm-hmm. um, in a, in a lot of ways, and uh, you know, that's. That's good. You know, 10 years ago, there's no shows about zombies on a major cable network. You know, just the the things that people can do and, and play with and storytelling, it's great. Now, who has the amount of time to consume all of this? Like, you, you really have to, I think, as you were just saying, like, just pick your, just pick things and, you know, kind of hope for the best yeah and you know there's no fear of missing out you have to you have to leave the fear of missing out feelings um aside but you know the internet can fuel all of that i think the internet you know can create social media creates a lot of unneeded anxiety i learned this recently i turned off all of my social media and email for eight days okay and Mm -hmm. just disconnected with 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 everything and i came back and i was like those things make me feel like uh, anxious a lot because i see the constant chatter of what you know people are are consuming and loving and watching and it's you know do i need to be doing this should i not be doing this and doing this and Mm -hmm. it's just this constant circle of questions spinning around in my head so you know I think it's just I don't know. I don't know how how people have time to watch everything. Um but you know, I don't know. You're not a, are you an internet person? Uh am I an internet person? Yeah, do you do you use the internet a lot? Yeah. You do. Yeah, but I'm I'm not up to speed on my social media. Like I I have um just one foot in there. You know, I I know that I should do more and yet I I do other things instead. <laughs> like I just sort of live. Yeah, it seems like, yeah, either, well, it seems like you're working all the time. 
Do you yeah, feel like you're I working see, all the time? I see some people that are able to work and get things and then stockpile things and they're ready to go. And it's 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 fun. I can see how it's really mm-hmm. fun, but I'm just doing other things. Right. But yes, I am working a lot of it. Does uh, do, do you think fear has a pretty healthy shelf life? Is it going to keep you busy for a while? Well, I certainly hope so. And I think it could. I think there's there's so many places to go with the story as we're already sort of as it's it's already showing. I mean, there's so many avenues to explore this sort of early on in the apocalypse. So, and and in a different country. So, I hope so. I'm actually really enjoying it. All right, good. Well, thanks, Kim, for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, thanks for tuning in today. For more podcasts, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcast. Become a subscriber on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify. And now look for us on the Google Play Music app on Android devices. Thanks for listening. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.